Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is the Bible really about? Is the Bible basically about me and what I must do? Or is it basically about Jesus and what he has done? When you read in Luke and Acts how Jesus, in those 40 days, uh, got his disciples together, 40 days before he ascended, after he was raised, what was he doing? Basically, he was saying everything in the Old Testament is about me. He says, the reason you didn't understand what I was about was you didn't realize that everything in the prophets and the Psalms and the law was pointing to me. Do you believe the Bible is basically about you or basically about him? Is David and Goliath basically about you and how you can be like David and Goliath or basically about him, the one who really took on the mate, the only giant that can really kill him? And so his victory is imputed to us. Who's it really about? That's the fundamental question. And when that happens, then you start to read the Bible new, you know. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the, wor- into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you loved from me. Now we, at the foot of the cross, can say to God, Now we know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you loved from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the means of grace that wake us up in discipline. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save him. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never looked at a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them, to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. Well, before we dismiss, are there any questions on that?
I know I can't just get away with a video here. Hey, we are going to take a quick review before we get to today's two passages that Scott read on why it's all about Jesus. Let's do a quick review. You know, in creation before the fall was perfect fellowship with God. It was paradise. And yet, Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the garden away from the Lord's presence. Away from the garden sanctuary, if you will, into the realm of death. East of the garden, Adam and Eve and their offspring are no longer able to gain access to the heavenly realm as they had prior to sin's defiling and devastating effect. The rest of Genesis focuses on the ever-increasing distance between sinful men and God between earth and heaven. Cain moves farther east of Eden, establishing his own city. The tower builders also travel further east, and as do the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, these geographical movements seem to reveal the ever-widening gap between God and men, heaven and earth. The message of Genesis is clear. By rebelling against God, Man has forfeited access to the heavenly realm and God's very presence. The two spaces no longer overlap as they did in Eden. Our best efforts at creating that access point are disturbing and wretched, driven by pride and riddled with yet even more rebellion against God. If heaven and earth are to unite again, it is God who must act from heaven for earth. You know, we just concluded a huge series on the book of Exodus. And ironically... The end of Genesis ends with the words, a coffin in Egypt. All you can say about man's trajectory since the fall is that we live in the realm of death. But God, in Exodus, it's all about God. Exodus is God's answer to man's need and God's supply for man's sin, as Adam's been speaking about. Exodus is a picture of our utter dependence on God, of God actively entering into our brokenness to redeem man, and his relentless pursuit to restore us and the paradise that was lost. To be able to live in his very presence again. To restore all that that was created. You know, as Adam said two years ago, Ben uh, led this class on preaching and gospel-centered preaching. This video was from him. It's really powerful. And basically the premise was, where is the gospel in the passage or text that you're preaching? You know, Charles Spurgeon said, from every text in the Bible, there is a road to Jesus. And I love a challenge. And Rich, I'm also, I'm very ADD. So praying, I relate to that. Nothing tells me how my mind is like trying to sit down quietly pray. Um, But I love a challenge. I I said, well, if that's true, I'm going to go with the very first verse in the Bible. And I went, now what? Where is it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, there's several things that the very first verse in the Bible teaches us that are foundational to our understanding of God and the Scripture. The total message of Scripture and the Gospel. Well, number one is when? In the beginning. The start of creation before Genesis 1-1, there existed no time, no heavens, and no earth. Nothing existed. Two, the next word in the verse 1 tells us who did something and were presented with God. Elohim is the Hebrew word. And what's interesting about that Hebrew word is the noun translated God is plural. But when it's used in created, it is singular. So we get a little hint of God in the Trinity uh, in that meaning. Next, we're communicated what God did. He created. He created. 
the word used is bara. And any time in Scripture it is used, God is always the subject. In other words, humans don't bara or create anything. And lastly is the phrase we're really going to hit on today, the heavens and the earth. This speaks of everything that exists. One of the words that the Hebrews don't have in their uh, vocabulary was a word for universe. So when this phrase is used in Scripture, it speaks of everything. You know, what I like about the Bible, amazingly, is it doesn't start off with some philosophical argument about the existence of God. And at any time, you or I feel qualified to argue about something as big as the existence of God, there's a 77-question pop quiz in the book of Job. And as Job found out in chapters 38 through 41, God's quiz demonstrated to Job if he couldn't answer one question about creation, he wasn't going to understand the whole context of suffering and what God sees. Namely, that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere. So you say, so what? Kevin, this is pretty basic. This is pretty boring. What stands out to you in this very first verse in the Bible? Well, hey, I'm glad you asked. There's two things that jump out to me. The big question, number one, why? What God created is such a mess now. And two, how in the world is the gospel found in Genesis 1-1? People don't exist. The fall is another three chapters away. How can we even begin to see it? Well, let's see if we can make those connections for you and me today. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Something we need to take caution here on as Christians, before we really dig in, is we tend to view this text primarily in terms of what it says to others, rather than in terms of what it says to you and me. Now, I'm talking about the endless arguments of evolution and literal stuff and creation. The question we really need to answer is why. The reason why God created the universe is far more important than how or when. When we understand why, we'll understand a lot better the other questions regarding creation even better. Number one, why? It's God's great love to dwell and be in the very presence of God and have a relationship with, with you and I, with us. Love is always expressed in something or someone else. Creation is an expression of the expression of God's great love, not always reduced to just scientific terms. I love the quote that says, science can teach us many things, but not what ought to be done. To answer question one, we're really going to focus today more on question two, and that is, where is the gospel found in this passage? You know, in in the creation account, what we see is heaven and earth actually overlap. The two realms coexist as God dwells both in heaven and on earth with his people in the garden. Adam has access to heaven and lives with and dwells with the very presence of God. Kind of sounds like what Adam's been talking about in the creation of the tabernacle, the temple. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the end goal of creation is the eventual union of heaven with earth, God's very presence. You know, to really put things together, we're going to jump to the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, which begins almost exactly the same way, uncanny, as Genesis. Arguments could be made, is this a new Genesis? Is John talking about a new beginning? Here's where all this starts to come together. 
Jesus, the gospel, the good news, is very existing in this image of creation in Genesis 1-1. But Christ is God's mystery hidden for many centuries, but pointed to over and over. The word here John uses is a Greek philosophical term to describe Jesus as the logos of God, the word of God. In Greek theology, it can mean principle of divine reason, also the divine reason implicit in the cosmos, and ordering it and giving it form and meaning. John employs supernatural themes like light and darkness, life and death, time and eternity. He uses images to describe Jesus, bread of the world, living water, life and death, the good shepherd. You know, many of these are very symbols in the tabernacle that we studied that represented God's presence. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John focus on a lot of literal events. John 1.1 echoes the first sentence of the Bible, written some 2,000 years earlier, to draw a clear parallel between the two individual texts. Genesis 1.1 reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John begins his gospel, In the beginning, was the Word. You know, if you notice the first thing about John's gospel is he doesn't open up like Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke. There's no genealogy. There's no shepherds. There's no manger scene. There's none of that. His entire gospel, just like the other ones, though, has one goal. And he uh, sums that up in uh, chapter 20, verse 31. Listen to this. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Hey, listen to Hebrews 1, 2 through 3. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And one last one, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have the, all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You know, the very climax, and Adam preached on this a couple weeks ago, of John's Gospel is found right here in the opening chapter in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the Son, the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's go back to the term John uses here, the Word, Word. It says that this Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. The God who created the world entered his creation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, when I think of the idea of dwelling among us or dwelling 
I kind of think of the term hanging out. But there's much more going on in what John is saying. He actually uses a peculiar word here when he could have learned or used a couple others uh, that are more familiar in Greek for the word to dwell. He chooses uh, the Greek word skenau. Now the word skene is Greek, which means tent. But the verb tent, uh, we could render it to pitch a tent. John tells us that the word, that this word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. That's kind of a weird way of saying it, isn't it? When he could have used two other words, but here he's using that word. Why say it like this when John could have used other words? Well, it's because his readers would have been familiar with the history of Israel. To recall the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and God dwelt with the Israelites. Where he dwelt with the Israelites. Jesus is the eternal God of creation, came to begin a new creation. In the opening of John, we see the foundation being laid to restore that which was lost from the very beginning. Behold, Jesus says, I make all things new. The Apostle Paul said that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And the question here today is, have you trusted in Jesus And is he your Lord and Savior? Now, if there's good news about God's presence, and this is where we're really getting to, and restoring us to that presence, then there's the bad news. And there's a saying that says, if you're going through hell, keep on moving. So we're going to keep on moving, but I want you to follow me here. You know, Randy Alcorn said, heaven without God would be like a honeymoon without a groom. A palace without a king. What was the tabernacle without the king? Teresa of Avila said, wherever God is, there is heaven. The corollary, wherever God is not, there is hell. You know, over the years, reckless assumptions about hell have been made. Uh, the reckless assumptions about hell have been made, have made <laughs> an already difficult topic even worse. From the vivid descriptions of Dante's Inferno or Evangelist Hellfire and Brimstone, the impression is too often that we must go beyond biblical description to scare and warn people to avoid such a horrible place. But the problem here is that hell, rather than God, becomes the object of fear. Too often we think hell is horrible and unimaginable because of torture and temperature. After all, various scripture says... Outer darkness describes it as lake of fire. Whatever the exact nature of hell is, it's horrible ultimately for one reason. God is present. Follow me here. In Ezekiel 18.23, God says, Do you think that I delight to see wicked people die? Of course not. I want them to turn away from their wicked ways and live. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, and neither can we. Hell is both the justification of God's justice and it's a requirement for his creation's restoration, disposing once and for all of evil, judgment. But it's also a tragedy that is eternally memorializes the horror of human rebellion. Now let's ask some questions here. Do you and I really then understand the wonder of being justified before a holy God? Do we get justification? 
that God justifies me, me, the wicked? This is the shocking counterintuitive claim that separates Christianity from every other religion. For other religions, it's simple. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. It's self-salvation from beginning to end. But the good news, and if there's good news, there's bad news. Scripture rings out that it is God who justifies the wicked, who placed their trust in Christ. Isaiah 53, 6, all of us have gone astray like sheep. We have all turned everyone to his own way. And Romans 3, 10, none is righteous, no, not one. That's just two verses in the Bible that say that. You know, one day we won't have a problem with eternal punishment. The problem is it will make perfect sense then, but we have no right in our present condition to defend the doctrine of eternal punishment in ways that either exceed Scripture or reflect a perverse delight in eternal destruction. You know, we know in Romans 3.23 it says everyone sinned, and consequently we stand condemned before a holy God. But John also says in 3.16, it tells us that because of God's great love for the world and people he created and wanting to restore his presence, he stepped in to rescue people from our helpless trajectory. If, there's an if, they trust in Jesus, the Messiah. But the Bible further says that anyone who dies without faith in Jesus dies in their sin and are destined for eternal punishment. John 8, 24, hear the words of Jesus. That is why I said that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am who I am and I claim to be, you die in your sins. And in nowhere in Scripture is it mentioned or hinted at that after a person dies, there's a chance to be saved. Hebrews 9.27, just as it's appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. And Jesus told a pretty serious parable in Luke 16, and in verse 26, it describes a great chasm so that people on one side can't cross over to the other. It's set in place. You say, uh, I'm confused, Kevin. We're talking about God's presence here. And why is the doctrine of hell so important? Well, let's make three points here about that. That's an excellent question. I'm glad you asked that one, too. Number one, it's important because we tend to forget or dismiss that Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven and describes it more vividly and warned about the absolute reality of hell more than all the biblical authors put together. Matthew 25:41 and verse 46, Jesus uses a word here to describe hell, Gehenna. Everybody remember what that was? Um, let me remind you. That was a valley in which piles of garbage were daily burned, as well as the bodies of those without families who could bury them. In Mark 9.43, Jesus speaks of a person going to Gehenna, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, we're going to think about this in terms of God's presence. Jesus is referring to the maggots that live on the corpses in the garbage heap. Normally, when all the flesh is consumed, the maggots die. But listen, Jesus is saying, however, that the spiritual decomposition of hell never ends. And that is why their worm does not die. Jesus speaks of eternal fire and punishment as the final place for the angels and human beings who have rejected him. Gehenna and maggots, it's a graphic image of decay, but it's just a symbol of a condemned human soul. 
Once a physical body is dead, it loses its beauty and strength. It begins to rot, stink, and degenerate. But in hell, the soul does not cease to exist, but becomes completely incapable of all the things a human soul created in God's very image was created for. Reasoning, feeling, creating, choosing, giving or receiving love or joy. And here it is. Why? Because the human soul was made for worshiping and enjoying the true God. All human life was created for just that. Living and dwelling in the very presence of God. But when we lose God's supportive presence altogether, the result is hell. In Matthew 10.28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can. He is speaking to his disciples. And his disciples here, these are the ones who would eventually be tortured, sawn in half, skinned alive, crucified, thrown off a high temple, and burned. And yet, and yet, Jesus says that's a picnic compared to hell. Clearly for Jesus, hell was a real place. Hell is a place not only of physical misery, but more crucially, spiritual misery, never-ending. Two, hell is important, the doctrine of it, because it demonstrates the ugliness of being away from God's presence. It shows God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen. When we decide to go our own way, living life for yourself, for myself. You know, many theologians believe that the biblical images of fire and outer darkness are metaphorical. That is, they paint a picture. If I told you last night it's raining cats and dogs, you know it was raining pretty hard last night. Um, but the problem is, I love what Jonathan Edwards says. He pointed out that the biblical language for hell was symbolic, but he added when metaphors are used in scriptural about spiritual things, they fall short of the literal truth. To say that the scriptural image of hellfire is not wholly literal is of no comfort whatsoever. The reality will be far worse than the image. What then are the fire and the darkness symbols for when we really study this? Here's the key. They are vivid ways to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God. Darkness refers to the isolation and fire to the disintegration of being separated from God, away from the favor and face of God we literally, horrifically, and endlessly fall apart. Paul explains that God in his wrath against those who reject him gives them up to their sinful passions of their hearts. Now, we know this can't mean God coerces people into sinning. In Ephesians 4, it's said that sinners give themselves up to their sinful desires. But listen to this. Then what does this really mean? It means that the worst and fairest punishment God can give a person is to allow them their sinful hearts and deepest desires. Do we not see this today? Is there not all kinds of forms of judgment going on? I can tell you right now, my life has seen glimpses of hell and walking away from God's presence, doing what I wanted when I wanted. Let's go back to the prodigal son. The father was God. He didn't grab him by the shirt collar when he finally wanted to do what he wanted to do, when he wanted to do it. He gave him over to his desires. Desires. Now he learned his lesson and came back, but it's the dangers of leaving the presence of God. There can be a line that's crossed if we don't come back. 
You know, our default setting is to run from God exactly the way Adam and Eve did. That's the sinful human heart. It's for dependence. Be our own God. In general or common grace, we get glimpses of heaven. But we also, in God's common grace, get glimpses of hell. The warning of it. The lessons, the warnings of of hell, uh, it's when we stop dwelling in God's presence. It doesn't take much to understand outside of God's presence, there's another presence waiting for you and I. And things quickly descend into hell. I, I can tell you I can leave here away from God's presence in less than five minutes and be bad-mouthing folks, complaining, cursing, you name it, that spiritual decline. And this is why we're told to pray ceaselessly, to talk to God endlessly, to be in His presence endlessly, and to read and dwell on His Word and stay in community that here bears His presence. You and I, especially for those who are saved and have Christ dwelling in them. It doesn't take long. What is hell then? It is God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen to go our own way, be our own masters of our own fate, to get away from Him and His controlling presence. Hell is consequently a prison in which the doors are first locked from the inside by us, and then they're locked from the outside by God. And every indication is that those doors continue to stay forever barred from the inside, even though every knee and tongue in hell will know that Jesus is Lord. Hey, listen. In the teaching of Jesus, we don't think about this enough. The greatest disapproval from the mouth of God is depart from me. Depart from me. That is the ultimate punishment. To simply be away from God, out of His presence, is the worst thing that can happen to us. Why? We were originally created to walk in God's immediate presence. It's impossible to depart from the Lord. Even hell can't exist unless He upholds it. We just read that. Hey, listen to the psalmist. He knew this. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Depart from me. You know, this makes all the sense in the world when I was reading this. And many of us know this. If we have a small acquaintance and and they reject you or hurt you, that stings a little bit. But if you have a lifetime friend who does that, it stings even more. And how many of us in our relationships or those who have faced divorce or family problems have somebody tell you, I never want to see you again, that's far more devastating. But we're talking about Jesus, who had an endless relationship with God. And, you know, the longer and deeper and more intimate the relationship, the more torturous any separation. Jesus' relationship with the Father was beginningless and infinitely greater than the most intimate and passionate human relationship. You know, when Jesus was cut off from uh, God and he was on the cross, he went into the deepest pit in the most powerful furnace there is. But he did it and experienced it for you and I willingly. So that's what we're going to talk about the last point. Unless we come to grips with the awfulness of hell, we can never understand love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. 
In Matthew 10:28, Jesus says that no physical destruction can compare with the spiritual destruction of hell, of losing the presence of God. Isn't this exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross, forsaken by the Father? In Luke, the rich man in hell, Hades, desperately thirsty. On the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. The water of life, the presence of God was taken from him. His body was being destroyed in the worst conceivable way. But that was a flea bite compared to what was happening to his soul. When Jesus cried out that his God had forsaken him, he was experiencing hell itself. Remember David in Psalm 51.11. After the disastrous lifelong consequences and, and after he had Bathsheba over for a game of checkers. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. This was nothing new. But let's consider Jesus' words in 1930 of John. It is finished. You say, Kevin, well, what's the it? What's finished? It is the payment for sin. And listen, think about this. We don't think about it enough, I don't think. I don't. I don't. I'll just speak for me. If our debt for sin is never paid for on the cross, it's so great that it's punished eternally in hell. So do we honestly grasp what Jesus took on, felt, and experienced in those unimaginable three hours or so in his crucifixion on the cross by Christ taking on all the sins of the entire world? What he went through was far worse and deeper than all of our eternal deserved hells put together. And yet so many people today will say, I, I have a personal relationship with a loving God, but I, I don't believe in Jesus' atonement and sacrifice because it's too ugly and my God is too loving to punish someone, especially for eternity. That's just too long. But this shows a deep misrepresentation of love, God, and the cross. On the cross, God himself, incarnated as Jesus, bore my and all of our punishment. Every single sin. All of it. And I go to 1 John 1, 4, and it says, We love because He first loved us. Do you realize we wouldn't even know anything about love had God not showed us first? We struggle to understand the term like. Love, biblical love, is not even a human concept then until God showed us what it is. You know, ironically, in our effort to make God more loving, we've made him less loving. His love, in the end, was sentimental at best, didn't need to do anything, and was not love at all. The worship of a God like this will be at most impersonal, headiness, just academic knowledge, and virtuous living, but empty. No joyful self-abandonment, no humble boldness, no constant sense of wonder. And you'd never be moved to the words we sang today, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Only through the cross can our separation from God be restored. That's it. That's the only way to get back in the presence of God. And we'll spend eternity loving and praising God for what he has done. Almost done here. You know, you and I are degraded, 
cheapened if Jesus didn't experience hell itself for us. If Jesus uh, suffered infinitely more than every human soul put together, yet he looks at you and me and says, it was all worth it. It was worth it. I love you. Nothing humanly imaginable could make us feel more loved and valued than that. It is finished. Because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement, we are now one again. Citizens of heaven. We have access to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And yet we still await the consummation, the marriage of heaven and earth. Listen in the words of Revelation here. Let's tie this into what we've been learning with what Adam's teaching us about the tabernacle. Revelation, using the types and symbols of earlier scriptures, describes this union of the two realms at the end of time as the old creation gives way to the new. And Revelation 21 paints a, a great picture. An angel takes John to a great high mountain where he sees the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God and grasping to capture the splendor and theological significance of the vision and what he is seeing, John's mixed metaphors go into hyperdrive. Listen to this. This heavenly city arriving on earth is the bride of Christ. The city is also described as a perfect cube. It's evoking the shape of the Holy of Holies in both the tabernacle and the temple. John continues, I, and I saw no temple in this city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God's heavenly presence is no longer restricted to an access point on top of a mountain or some inner room in a tabernacle. God's presence is with the entire created order. God's purpose for creation, Genesis 1-1, has finally come to realization. Heaven has come to and is part of earth and all creation has become the dwelling place of God, just as it was intended back in Genesis 1.1. I know that was kind of skating figure eights to get back there, but the resurrection, folks, is the confirmation of the goodness of Genesis 1.1. The resurrection is the confirmation of the goodness of God's perfect creation. After decisive judgment on the evil forces that have corrupted the present world, this is the good news. This is the gospel. Let's pray. Father, too often, too often, I don't get it. I don't meditate on the wonder. I don't meditate on my own sinfulness, Father, but more so I don't meditate on your version of love. Your version of love. It's so skewed. It's so shaped by how people treat people. And Father, everything's been twisted because of brokenness. Your perfect creation in Genesis 1-1. Because you loved us. Father, knowing that kind of love, I think on this side, would, would kill us if we fully understood your version of love. How much you love us. How much you gave up. And Father, help us to see the 
very important to being in your presence. Father, that your presence lives each and in, in each and every one of us and that we need each other. We thank you for the good news. We thank you for the gospel. We cannot even begin to understand it sometimes. All we can do is have the words thank you and praise you. Just like we will in eternity when we fully see these things. Then and there will we fully understand. But until then, Father, give us that faith that doesn't fail. Give us that faith that grows to be in your presence. That has the disciplines to be in your presence. To understand the importance of what it means to be in your supportive presence. Because I know too often in my life the pain of being out of your presence. So we thank you. We thank you and we love you. Through Christ's name, amen.